Our Bible reading today is from John. We are now resuming our studies in the book of John. And it's John 13. And the passage we are reading is when Jesus, um, just before, it's coming, leading up to Jesus' death. John 13. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his control and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now that I what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Not that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. 
One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Sorry. Perfect. Thanks, Lois. Good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. So we're back into our series, Jesus Brings. Last year, we looked at the first half of John's Gospel. With every chapter, we looked at exactly what Jesus brings to us. And as we dive back into the second half... John chapter 13, today we see that Jesus brings, this is what we're filling into the blank, Jesus brings an amazing example of love for us to follow. And that's why I'm so glad Lois read to the end, because as Patrick Christie said, there's always a main point, there's a punchline in every teaching, and this is it, we can put it up on the screen, John 13, 34, a new command in light of all that Jesus does and shows us here, he leaves all of his disciples a new command, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Jesus is the example that we are to follow, and he puts it to us as disciples to love one another as he has loved us. Now that's amazing love. It's also massive love. And I like to think that I aspire to delivering that kind of love, that kind of self-sacrificial love. I like to think that if it came to my family, any member of my family, my immediate family and wider family, that I would be willing to lay down my life for them. If the circumstances meant 
I would lay down my life for them. And we've even been watching the Marvel series. We've got Disney Plus at the moment, so Kale's watching some little kitty stuff, and we're also watching some little kitty stuff, the Marvel Universe. Um, we're, we're going through it in chronological order, and there's all these great heroes and their heroic love of laying down their own life for complete strangers. And we identify with that at some level, maybe just aspirationally, because I would like to even do that kind of heroic love, that if there was a complete stranger and circumstances needed it, I would lay down my life for them. I like to think that until these little scenarios come up in life that make me question my own motives. Um, last week, I was in a cafe catching up with a friend. The company was lovely. The decor was perfect. The atmosphere was harmonious. Everything was wonderful, and I felt good. And then I went to pay for... Uh, no, I went to order up at the front counter. And you know how you have to stand on those dots at the moment, those big dots in all cafes that keep the social distancing up? So I was in, on one dot, and the dot kind of trailed... The line of dots trailed out on this angle, but there was this other dot over here. Sometimes you go into these cafes and you go, it doesn't make sense, you're trying to make a line, but there's dots everywhere. And a lady, even though I had been standing on my dot, there's a couple of people in front... A lady comes up and stands on this dot, and I'm thinking, what is she thinking? <laughs> Can't she see there's a definite line here? This is where the dotted line is, and she's standing there. And so what ensued was a bit of a, one of those shuffle sparring things where I could see that she was, was edging and getting a little antsy to the edge of her dot. And so I shuffled to the edge of my dot, and then she even started to put her toe over the dot. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Surely she knows that I was here first. And then it occurred to me, both of us are in this spa for trying to communicate to one another that we're actually going to take the next spot in the line. And by God's grace, I released the tension by saying... I'm not sure who's next in the line. Would you like to go in front of me? But it, it doesn't always go that way. It doesn't always go that way. So you see those little scenarios, the little things in life that make you question how heroic you might actually be. Because sometimes it is nice and loving in the little ways. You, you let go of what's rightfully yours. Other times you hold on to it. But here we are challenged that in all realms of life, as disciples, we are to love one another. And if we could put that verse back up, just go back please, Leah. There's an important thing that Jesus says here, as we love one another as Jesus has loved us, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus tells us that we will know, everyone, we will know, our brothers and sisters will know, the world will know that we are his disciples if we manifest this love. And as we go through this chapter, we'll see that we get pressed, all disciples of Jesus, particularly Peter, um, gets pressed as to, you might think you get Jesus. We might think that we get Jesus, what he's on about, but there's a deeper question, do you really get it? 
You've only got Jesus if you go on to manifest the type of love that Jesus has loved us with. So as we go through this chapter, we'll get pressed on that question. Okay, you're saying you get it, you get it, you get it, but have you actually got it? Does this type of love in the little things, the medium things and the large things manifest itself? Then you know, then everyone knows that we are genuinely Jesus' disciples. As we go through this story, we pretty much fall into the shoes of Peter because Jesus keeps questioning him um, as a bit of the focal point of the disciples as to how much they get it. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 13. Um, Two really quick things just to get us into some context because we haven't been in John for a little while. If you look at verse number one, it says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. When we've read through John's Gospel from the beginning, um, chapter 1, it states that Jesus has come from the Father into this world in order to glorify the Father. That sets up the whole narrative. And then for the rest of the story, you see Jesus often going to the big festivals the big Jewish festivals like the Tabernacles, Passover, Hanukkah, and there he will do some amazing miracles, massive miracles. And John will often commentate around them by saying, when Jesus did this miracle, he did a sign momentarily revealing his glory, who he actually was. He was doing the kind of things that only God does and God had done in the past. So momentarily, even though he looked like a a regular Jewish human being, momentarily he revealed there was this sign that pointed to who he was. And often Jesus would teach around these signs and he would explain that he comes from the Father God. And he would say controversial things like, I have always existed with the Father. And the Father and I are intimate and one The Father shows me everything. Everything I do on earth is exactly what the Father God wants. So Jesus is doing that and we get to a point of tension in his life after lots of these signs and particularly the teaching claiming that he is from the Father. The Jews, the Jewish leadership, want to kill Jesus. And now we are back in Jerusalem at a Passover feast. At chapter 13, Jesus has walked deliberately into Jerusalem one last time, and his disciples even said, "Uh, you're a bit mad. Last time you were in Jerusalem, they wanted to kill you. What are you doing back here? And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and we feel there is huge tension. We are at the climax of the story of Jesus' life at chapter 13. In verse 2... Here's the other second little thing to point out. We see the evening meal is in progress and the devil has prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And at that point, we get this trigger moment in Jesus' life. He's about to die. He said that he will die. The tension is in the air. 
and things are starting to progress. This final moment, the moment, the hour, is now kicking off. Even Jesus states it is the hour. And we see that Satan enters Judas, getting him ready to betray. We heard in the rest of the story that that's indeed what Judas does. But it's important to see that through all this, Jesus makes clear, or John makes clear, that Jesus knew all of this and all of this tension Even Judas betraying, even Satan entering Judas, somehow is all in Jesus' power and is deliberately what he came for, this moment. So verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So that's an important contextual thing because all that is happening, Jesus the whole time has been saying, I came from the Father deliberately for this moment and I will return to the Father. And it's in this moment that things slow down in our story. And verse 4, we see Jesus do a particular action before his disciples. And the story really slows down. John gives us every single detail of the moment when Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus is very deliberately doing an action in light of the fact that it is the moment, the moment he was destined for and that he's in complete control of. And now we step into the shoes of Simon Peter, who kind of acts as us. He's our proxy in the story. And we we will see that he kind of gets things, but he doesn't get it completely. Verse 6, Jesus comes to Simon Peter and Simon Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And we're starting to see that at one level, Peter's getting something of the the wrongness of this situation. Jesus is his Lord. He's calling him Lord. And now Jesus is washing his feet. Um, That didn't normally happen. There was usually a servant that would come and wash his feet, but the the Lord, and they already knew that Jesus was, was very important, the Lord is actually washing his feet. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And it's, when you stop and think about it, it's a pretty disgusting thing to do. Feet in general are disgusting. Do you find that? They're just a, most people do not have nice feet. I, I, anyone a podiatrist here? <laughs> Who chooses podiatry, surely? If you've ever seen mum and dad's feet in their old age, you don't go down the line of podiatry. So it's a disgusting thing, but yet Jesus is deliberately doing this odd practice that you would just relegate to other people. And Jesus replies in verse 7 to Peter, Right now you do not realise what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Even in our story, even in Jesus' actions, there's this dynamic of you, you might get it, but you haven't quite got it yet. But there's a promise. You will get it. You will understand. 
And so Peter, in verse 8, says, No, you shall never wash my feet. So again, he's kind of getting it. He calls him master and rabbi. This is wrong. You you can't wash my feet. And so he, he kind of gets it. But Jesus says to him, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus points out there's something he's not getting. He hasn't quite got it. You can have no part in Jesus unless Jesus actually washes you. And then Simon Peter kind of goes to a new level of getting it. And he goes, well, okay, if that's the case, verse 9, then not just my feet, my hands and my head as well. Seems like he's getting something of it. Well, if there's no part in Jesus, then I, I need, my, need to be washed by Jesus, then wash every limb. But still Jesus points out to him that he doesn't quite get it all. He hasn't got it. Verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Peter has not yet got that if Jesus washes you, then it's a type of washing that makes you completely clean. You can walk around saying your whole body is clean. Now, if we're reading this for the first time, we kind of don't get it all. It sounds strange. How can you have a bath that cleans you totally? And it's only as we keep reading the story that Jesus and John's gospel by the Spirit helps us to understand what type of cleaning this is. This symbol that Jesus is deliberately doing on his final night when everything is the moment falls in the rest of these chapters which are about Jesus' death on the cross. As we read the rest, it becomes clear that by the blood of Jesus, as we sang, his death on the cross washes us white as snow. There is a cleansing that Jesus does through his death and resurrection that cleans the whole body, cleans us completely Of sin. Jesus has been saying all along, This is why I came. This is why I was sent from the Father to come for this moment of death in order to cleanse his disciples. Our world famous verse from John 3 16, a time when Jesus says exactly that For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In time, Peter will get that, hopefully we've got that, that Jesus' death is the type of bath that cleanses us once and for all. We are right and clean and pure before God. That's wonderful. There is one little detail in this that usually gets us all curious, if you've read this before, and that's how Jesus says, um, those who have had a bath, so verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Do you see that? And you go, well, kind of, you read the whole story and you get that it's a special bath, it's unique, Jesus' blood cleans us. What's it mean to only wash your feet? I'm going to put it out there that it is a difficult little detail in the metaphor, Um, But what is underlined is that whatever this washing of our feet involves, 
Jesus makes clear that we are clean. He says to Peter, you are clean. Even if you have to wash your feet, you are clean. The type of bath that Jesus gives makes us clean. So what exactly is the washing of the feet? Lots of people have thought into this and there's lots of different ideas. I'm just going to offer a suggestion that I think it might be pointing towards. And it comes from reading the rest of John's Gospel, particularly from chapter 13 through to 17. This is one big conversation Jesus is having, mainly where he talks and he also prays. And the theme throughout it is that he is leaving. He is leaving this world to go to the Father to prepare a place for the disciples, assuring them that they will come to be where he is. And throughout, he constantly says that even though I leave you, I will be with you, I will help you, even though it's a world full of trouble and angst that will take place. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It seems to me that maybe this metaphor is picking up on the fact that Jesus has cleansed them, but the disciples are being left in the world for a short time. It's like how if you were coming to this meal, the Passover meal, you can imagine that you have a bath and have a shower and ready for the event, but then you kind of have to walk your way through town to get to the house. Or another little analogy that may help us understand it is over the school holidays I've gone to the beach probably 20 plus times with kale and I've got a little video here so play that there's no audio we have done this so many times it's the thing that he wants to do at the beach we bury him and so you can see that there's just sand everywhere and I mean everywhere and so when it comes to pack up time I say to Kale, right, get all your gear, go down to the water and baptise yourself in the water, get yourself completely clean and make sure you do every little crevice and then we have to walk back up the beach to the car. And so even though he's washed, there's still a bit of walking that he has to do and the feet get dirty. Still staying in this world, there's a bit of muck that gets on us. And so I'm offering that this is possibly what it means, that in the light of that we are left, the disciples are left in the world, a a mucky world. We can, on the one hand, be assured that we are clean, cleansed, and we will actually be taken to be with the Lord. But we still do exist in the world at the moment. And it's a world where your feet can get dirty. There's a wonderful part of the Bible that actually does commentary on all of this, which I find helpful, and that's 1 John. There's a verse here, 1 John. If you, if you want to do this as we go through John for the rest of the term, reading the epistles of John, the letters of John, can be really helpful. He commentates and explains so much of what he wrote in these stories. And here he says... My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John 
seems to be teaching here that even though we um, should not sin and we strive not to sin, we do currently exist where we do sin from time to time. But we can be assured in that, even as we see our feet are a little bit dirty, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, before the Father, and he has totally cleansed us. So from verse 12 onwards, coming back to John 13, um, at the end of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, he puts his clothes back on and returns everything to its place. And again, he says, do you understand what I have done for you? These questions that Jesus keeps putting out, do you understand? Do you get it? Do you get it? Keep working attention through the story of you might think you get it, like Peter thinks he gets it at points, but do you actually get it? He goes on and says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. If we get it, we can only say that we've got it at the point that we do follow the example of Jesus, who is so high, who is the Lord God, and yet he came down to wash us completely clean. And he would even do a menial task in order to display and help explain and point people to this great love that he has for them. So it's one thing to say we get it, but we've only got it at the point that we do follow Jesus' example. He says, who are we to think that we would be any better or different than the Lord Almighty in this? As he talks about, the servant is never greater than his master. Now, if Jesus is our master has done this, who are we to at all balk at laying down our life or showing acts of love to other people? We are not to stop or hold back our love because of our position. So all of us have some position in life. It's worth thinking of what position you have and then thinking how can I step down from that position in order to show love. I think as you recognise what position you have in life, in society, in jobs, in family, and then think creatively, how can I actively step out of that position in order to show love that points to God and Jesus? You'll come up with lots of creative ways that display this to yourself, your church and the world. We're not to think that person is dirty or sinful and pull back from showing love. Jesus saw how dirty and sinful the world is, and it's in, li- it's in light of that that he actually deliberately shows them love. So you might think of people in your life that it's very easy to go, oh, they, that kind of person, they don't deserve it. Maybe get creative and think of the people in your life that don't deserve this kind of love and step out of your position and act. And it may even cost us 
I mean, it's clear that it cost Jesus everything. Um, That's another little test we can put in there. Stepping out of our position, showing love to people that don't deserve it, even at our expense, uh, even if they don't reciprocate. Um, That is the kind of love that we are to copy. So if you come over to verse 34, um, looking at the final section, we don't have time to go through everything, but looking at the final section, again, Jesus puts up for us, this is the type of love we are to copy. We are to copy Jesus' love. And that's why it's a new command. The whole Bible talks about God is love and also calls upon his people to love God and love their neighbour. But this is new in that God, through Jesus, shows love to the unlovable and displays it at cost to his position, taking on other people's dirt and sin. At great cost, he displays love. And so that's what we're looking for as we think about how we must love one another and love others in our community and world. Love one another, verse 34, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And Jesus says that we won't have got that until the point that we actually do it. Because then we know. Then we know that real love. We experience that real love. We manifest that love. Everyone will know. We will know it. Others will know it at the point that we manifest it. It's not not enough to just say, I get it, I get these things. You've got it when we manifest. We will see as we keep going through John that Jesus' work is all about providing our cleansing and power to do this kind of love. So he doesn't just leave us with, this is the example, you must do it. He provides everything we need in order to do it. Um, Jesus' work is so that we produce fruit. That's going to be a theme that comes up. Produce fruit, produce fruit. I will produce fruit. Stay with me. Connect to me. You will produce fruit. The Spirit will be with you. You will produce fruit. And he says again and again this command, love one another. That's the fruit. Love one another as I have loved you. That command keeps going through the whole Bible, particularly the New Testament. Ephesians 5 says that we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Particularly for husbands, you are to love your wife just like Jesus loved the church, laying down his life. There's a great theologian from the 4th century, Augustine. This is the picture I found of him. It looks like he's pulling out his hair, but I think it's meant to say that he had this fiery brain and then he's holding a heart. So he's a great theologian to have a look at. His name's um, Augustine. Some people might say Augustine. Depends whether you grew up in a Catholic tradition or a Protestant tradition and learnt the English language that way. But uh, he is well known for recognising that how, how much God had loved him and it just turned his life around. He had a, a dirty, dirty life and he was seized by God's love and he recognised this dynamic that we've been talking about, that it's not enough to just say you get stuff. You have only got it once you actually embody and do the very love that Jesus modelled for us. 
He calls it the double love. So let me read. So anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot by his understanding build up this double, double love of God and neighbour, has not yet succeeded in understanding them. We understand and get, have got Jesus' love as we see amongst our lives and our group life, we manifest the type of love that Jesus had for us. At the end of this story, Jesus um, says, it's, it's biting, isn't it? Verse 38, Jesus says to Peter, after Peter has just said, I will follow you, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? That's where the proof would be. Would you really lay down your life for me? Uh, in the next episode, Peter doesn't succeed. But wonderfully, if we read at the end of John's Gospel, we're told that he does actually lay down his life for the Lord Jesus. Based on Jesus' work for him, and he sees and understands that, and he's empowered by God's Spirit, he does go on to love Jesus in the way that Jesus has loved him. He actually does lay down his life. Let me read one last passage from our commentary on John, which is 1 John. Um, this is capturing what Augustine saw. Um, the type of love that Jesus has for us is kind of in our DNA, if we've got it. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone, whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's a little bit more. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So let me leave us with a bit of thinking time. Right now, think about the circles of our lives, starting with your family. Um, who's, who's been the, the really unlovable one? This is something we can take into at least next week. Think about who's the hard one to love. And think about how you can step out of your position and despite that, despite that they're quite unlovable, what are you going to do? Um, pray about it and think. Stepping out, what it might cost you, and I'm sure you'll come up with some God-inspired creativity of showing them remarkable, amazing love. Think about work. If you're going into work or school, there's 
You might be in a position of, of hierarchy. Think about how you can step out of that. There might be people around you that are annoying colleagues, even evil colleagues. What are you going to do to show the type of love that Jesus shows? And then think about even at church. There's a lot of, of us who are quite dirty. You know, um, it, it can be lot. It's in the little things. This is the important thing, I think, for me. As much as we go, oh, I've got the DNA for this heroic love, if we cannot do it in the small stuff, how are we going to do it in the big things? You see, it's not love once you get to the point of actually laying down your life. Love is our DNA, as we've just read. And in whatever it is, little, small or large, even if it takes laying down your life, we will do it if it brings us, bring, helps bring others closer to God and brings us closer to one another. Let me pray for us to that end. Dear Heavenly Father, you so loved the world, us, within it, in its darkness, in its evilness. We thank you for the great love that we have seen, that you have displayed in the Lord Jesus. And his great love for you that, despite what it cost him, he laid down his life to cleanse us, to give us whole cleansing. Lord, please help us to cultivate by your power this type of love. May we keep looking to what you have done to see the gift that you have given us, knowing that when we fail, we are still clean, but also see the exemplary force that how could we be any different? May we see this week the little things where we can show love, cultivate it in us. May we be practising it and even if called upon for the massive heroic things. May we love others as you have loved us, that we might know we are your disciples, that the world may also know that we are your disciples. Amen.